welcome to episode 342 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with Yale University professor Dr. Paul Walsh. And we talk with Paul about, first of all, how do you pronounce dramaturge, turg, you'll find out, about struggles when collaborating and how those struggles can transform, transcend into something wonderful. Having faith in all parties involved, dealing with conflict, is Ben's ghosts what visionary theater can be? Talent and discipline, earnestness, working together, staying fresh and open, why theater is important, and how do you know when something is good, among other things. A grand conversation with Dr. Paul Walsh on the program. We have an EW essay titled Float, and a brand new radio play written by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled Today's Forecast and performed by Marnie Azzarelli. And we have a poem called Coffee Table. All of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 342 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
I was driving down a country stretch recently, trying to find my way back to the state road that will bring me into the small city that sprouts out of this neck of the woods I call home. Up and down and curve to the left, then curve to the right. The middle autumn sun shining bright, reflecting off the small lakes and ponds as my vehicle stirs off the ground, colorful crisp leaves to waft in the breeze, many of which will eventually touch down and float atop the sky's reflection. Which way is up and which one is down? Is my smile an upside-down frown? The cornball smugness I would like to upend. I saw Halloween decorations in this early November wind, and I'm gaining weight and stomach agitation from avid consumption of our household collection of trick-or-treat candy. I slipped another bite-sized butterfinger into my mouth as I noticed the strip club named Grandview. Its sign has spelled on it, Amateur Night, 8 until 11 p.m. I wonder if my ethical sensibilities are stronger than my sexual proclivities. A bit more up and down the hills of the state road until I will enter the little city with its deep questions about how to transcend generations of clan mentality and church-induced fear and prejudice. I enjoyed the reprieve within the depths and bold honesty of nature and should be there more often.
Hello, Dr. Paul Walsh. Is that you? This is me. Hello. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. Oh, it's wonderful having you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And before we get started, let me share with the listeners a little background information. Paul Walsh, Yale professor in the practice of dramaturgy and dramatic criticism, joined the faculty in fall 2008. Prior to coming to Yale, Dr. Walsh taught courses in dramaturgy, theater history and dramatic literature at the University of Massachusetts and at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. He served as senior dramaturge at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco from 1996 to 2005. His translations of Isbin's A Doll's House, Master Builder, and Hedda Gabler have been produced at the American Conservatory Theater, Aurora Theater, Yale Repertory Theater, People's Light and Theater Company and the Williamstown Theatre Festival, among others. His new translation of Isbin's John Gabriel Borkman premiered in August 2016 at the Stratford Festival in Stratford, Ontario. His translations of August Strindberg's five-chamber plays were published by Exit Press in 2012 after premiering at San Francisco's Cutting Ball Theatre which also produced his translation of Strindberg's A Dream Play in May 2016. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program professor, writer, dramaturge extraordinaire, Dr. Paul Walsh. 
Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. I'm not sure about extraordinaire, but <laughs> we do the best we can. Uh, well, yeah, I guess that's subjective, but I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll give you that. I believe it's warranted. So, for those who don't know, my associate producer, Dr. Pavis, uh, he has informed me. He informed me a long time ago about what a dramaturge is because he always wanted to be one, and he is kind of one here in our region. But many people don't know what a dramaturge is or dramaturgy is all about. Can you can you help us understand? Well, I think one of the first most important things that we do as dramaturgs in the profession is describe what a dramaturg is, <laughs> because it's a mystery to many people. But I like to say that a dramaturg surrounds the work with talk. Basically, uh, and it, it varies. I've worked as a freelance dramaturg and also as an institutional dramaturg. And basically, my job is to engage in a conversation about the work we're doing with the artistic team and with the audience. So first, as a play is being discussed and, and decided about for, for possible production, we talk about the kinds of the kinds of opportunities that this, this play offers for our audience and the kind of opportunities it offers for our larger so social issues that are being discussed. And then as we move into production, we talk about the very specific ways that the play is going to be produced and the way, the kinds of things it wants to communicate. And my job is to really try to engage those conversations, deepen those thoughts, and extract from them um, a, a way forward. Then after a play is in rehearsal, I work with the artistic team, the actors, the director, the designers, to try to forward the um, the thinking that we've been doing, make sure that we're on track, that we're being as clear as possible or as obscure as we want to be, and um, that the production will live in the minds and uh, memories of the audience in a way that uh, really reinforces the work we've done. Then as the play is in, is in performance, I meet with members of the audience, I do talk back uh, with the audience, I've contributed to publications that the, the uh, institution or the theater has put forward to the audience, and dig deeper into the work that we've done. So surrounding the work with talk is really how I describe my profession. You know, first of all, I think um, all these years I've been pronouncing the term incorrectly. I say turge, but it's turge. Many people do. Uh, up in Canada, it's it's dramaturg, uh, dramaturge. Here in in the United States, we say dramaturg. I think it's uh, as with the profession itself, it's open to many interpretations. Oh, good. Oof, I thought there for <laughs> I was saying it wrong all the time. Now, I I'm wondering about struggles that you must encounter between maybe the director, the writer. I don't know if you're doing musicals as well. The choreographers. Do you do you have to deal with that sometimes in your in your oh, role? Yeah. <laughs> of course. You know, um, whenever there's a lot of creative people in the room, there's going to be uh, contrary opinions, contrary points of view, and contrary intentions. And part of the, part of my job is to uh, find the, the places of connection, the places of where we are on the same page, and then through then um, reinforce the notion of a, a collaborative vision that in, encourages everyone to be as imaginative and outspoken as they choose to be, but in service of the same uh, of a of a common result, a common goal, and that common goal is, of course, the production itself. And I guess uh, everybody has to pretty much respect the dramaturg and their understanding of what that work is is supposed to communicate, what what it's supposed to transcend for that to occur. Well, I would say that the uh, the dramaturg has to earn that respect, and um, that means also uh, listening very carefully to all of the opinions in the room and really striving to uh, expand 
one's own thought at the same time as you're as you're uh, encouraging others to speak their speak their mind. So it's it's really a uh, the fundamental act of collaboration with the with the team. And collaboration can sometimes lead to conflict, and conflict is a necessary uh, part of the collaborative process. Oh, no doubt, and and really. The the mark of what kind of people you're working with is really detailed by how they deal with the conflict. Conflict. That's that's so true, and everyone who's involved in every production, I think, um, is has has a has a good sense of faith, of faith in each other and faith in themselves. That really propels the work forward. So there's not there, while there might be conflict. And sometimes unavoidable uh, and un- insurmountable conflicts. Um, the primary goal of doing the best possible work really leads us to uh, consider those those various opinions and uh, various points of view in the room. And I, I'm sorry to bring it here, but I have to put this joke in there because it's just I, I can't I can't uh, uh, control myself. It sounds <laughs> just it sounds just like Congress, you know. Oh, when Congress is working at its best. <laughs> Well, you're a diplomat as well. <laughs> I think that's an important part of the profession. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine it is. Now, when um, when you we mentioned uh, your your credits, you've been doing this for a number of years. Uh, who are some of the folks that uh, you really enjoyed working with over the last couple of uh, decades? Oh, there's quite a number. Um, most recently, when we did uh, we did a production of Ibsen's Ghosts at. Uh, the Williamstown Festival this past summer, and I worked with a director who I worked with for many years, uh, Carrie Perloff. I was her dramaturg at, at the American Conservatory Theater when she was artistic director there, and she's been an enormous uh, support of my work over the years, particularly my translations of Ibsen. So working with her is, is always a joy. We have a uh, mutual respect and a very strong sense of um, uh, of how each other works and how one or the other of us can fit into that work. So I very much enjoy working with her. I also worked for a number of years with a theater company in Minneapolis, uh, Theater de la Jeune Lune, where I worked with the director, Dominique Serrand, who's a true visionary of the theater. And I, I learned so much in, the, in during those years about how theater works, how actors work, um, what a, a visionary theater can be. So those are two people that I've worked with over the past um, decades that I've uh, that I think back to fondly and look forward to working with again in the future. And how about students? You know, uh, you've had some pretty incredible students. One of them has been a regular uh, contributor on our show, I, I'm so happy to say, over the last several years, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Martina Mayok. I have, being here at the School of Drama for the past 12 years has allowed me to work with an amazing range of students. I teach a course in theater history, a year-long course, that uh, every student in the School of Drama has to pass in order to get a degree, which means that I'm the only faculty member in the school that gets to teach every single student in the school. And it's incredible across the the many disciplines that the School of Drama uh, encompasses. So I've worked with amazing young designers, um, amazing people who are moving into the dramaturgical profession or the teaching profession, playwrights like uh, like Martina or Jeremy O'Harris and uh, and designers like Ao Lee. Brilliant, imaginative, resourceful, incredibly talented. Because we are and actors of course by the by the dozens, because we are the the premier theater training program in the country, we're very selective in our um, admissions process. And so we get 
probably the most talented and um, and the most thoughtful of uh, people in each of their fields, whether it's theater management or uh, production design and uh, uh, production management. Uh, well, let, me, let me ask you, uh, when you're working with some of these folks that you deem talented, um, do you find... This might be a tough question, and uh, I'm probably going to sound like a, uh, a total amateur, but uh, indulge me. Do you find that the uh, earnestness is just as important as the talent, you know, the, the depth of genuineness, I guess I'm trying to say, as it is the raw talent that uh, the individual has? That's a great question. I think that um, a talent is really important, and it, it, it might be ingrained it might be something we're born with but a discipline is just as important and um, maybe discipline and earnestness come together but they're not necessarily the same thing i think that uh it's very important that students of theater continue to be uh continue to remember what it is to play to uh think imaginatively to think broadly to uh to think with engagement in their local communities and the wider uh, social and political issues that are surrounding us that are part of what the audience brings with them into the theater, but also to think individually and uh, and play individually. And those things are just as important. So a kind of mixture of talent, discipline towards craft and seriousness, I think are incredibly important for uh, both for young people moving into the profession and for people who are who have con had a long life in the profession those who succeed are those who are perhaps earnest but certainly uh, attentive to the work they do yeah that that makes total sense to me uh, and i you know i recently had a conversation with uh, a tony award winner and and he was explaining to to us about the importance of staying connected to the the essence of, of, I guess, exploration still and not getting caught up yeah. in, in uh, 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 the ego, of course, or, or anything of that nature, or just going through the motions. You can never, you can never really connect with your fellow actors and artists or the audience, of course. That's so, so true. I think that that sense of, of staying connected both to yourself and to the wider world is so important. And uh, it's hard to um, it's hard to keep track of all of those things. I remember I think one of the one of the mottos I live by is when you're up to your ass in alligators, it's hard to remember that your first intention was to drain the swamp. But I know <laughs> draining the swamp has taken on a new meaning in the past couple of years. But ultimately, you know, we are we are up to our neck in alligators all the time. And one of the things that I so much enjoy about uh, teaching at the School of Drama is um, that I'm constantly pushed back to, to first principles, that I'm constantly reconfronted with my own choices, my own decisions, and my own uh, prejudices in terms of the kinds of work that I admire and, uh, and the reasons for it. And I have to constantly reevaluate everything I do, and I love that. Uh, that's what being around young people does. It doesn't necessarily keep you young, but it keeps you from getting too old. Exactly. I'm a professor as well, and I, I have the same experience. It, it, uh, it does keep you on your toes. It makes you reflect. Uh, if you're paying attention, if you're listening, if you're truly connected with them, uh, and that, that is so valuable. Because, I mean, when you look at it all, it's just we're all pretty young when, in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, right? It's so true. It's so true. And that, you know, that ties into uh, the way I define my work as a dramaturg as well, because I think that that act of constantly listening, constantly being able to reevaluate your own choices, constantly being able to uh, not 
be the expert in the room, but simply be another voice in the room is so important. It's so important for us as teachers. It's so important for us as citizens. And it's so important for us as, as theater makers. By the way, uh, the the um, the Tony Award winner I referenced was Frank Wood. He, he was ah. on... Yeah, you probably know him. <laughs> Actually, we worked together on an incredible production of Waiting for Godot, where he played the most amazing um, Lucky that I've ever seen. Oh, I wish I could have seen that myself. He's an amazing guy. A wonderful conversation. Uh, mm. now, now let's let's get into your translation work. Mm. You know, uh, theory of translation, I guess, is something <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you to explain. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to succeed, but I can tell you about my own uh, uh, work as a as a translator, my own process. And tra- for me, translating for the stage is very different from translating a novel or a poem, where you're you're where you're translating for a a reader, and translating for the stage, you're translating for an audience, and you're translating um, for actors. And act it's in translating Ibsen, I I learned that my job is not to translate make the play understandable to an audience it's to make the play understandable playable to actors it's their job to make it clear or obscure or heartfelt for the audience so i i really aim to translate um in a way that makes text that that makes it possible for the actors to transform text into speech that means that the, the the text has to be um, has to ha- resonate in such a way that it it sounds like it feels like people speaking in the immediate moment of performance, uh, and that's a that's a wonderful challenge, uh, something that's playable, something that's speakable, uh, something that uh, and by speakable I mean that it comes out of the mouth as if it were a real person speaking it, a real living person. Um, and it has the same depth, the same poetry, the same quality as the original, but in a way that sounds like it is happening right now. You mean there right, are many theories of translation, and uh, uh, and I, when I teach a course in translation, I go into some of them. But ultimately, for me, it's uh, if you're translating for the stage, you're translating for performance. And when you see when you say that it makes sense right now, do you mean in in the context of contemporary uh, goings on, or do you mean within the language that it's going to be pre- performed and and uh, and and uh, presented on stage? Or uh, I think right by right now, I mean uh, when when we watch a play, we're watching characters living in the moment. Uh, that moment may be a hundred years from before we were born, or it may be uh, con- as contemporary as we are today. But these characters are present before us right now, and they are interacting and speaking at, um, as if these things were really happening in the moment. And so that uh, that sense of trying to capture speech in the moment, not necessarily uh, it can be nineteenth century characters speaking in the moment or it can be 21st century characters speaking in the moment uh and it's not my job is not to update or uh um toy with the the language that that the original provides me with but simply to uh to read it very slowly in a way that it, to read it very slowly from its original language norwegian in the case of ibsen into uh into english that captures the immediacy of the speech as it appeared in the original. And what about your your uh, 
I guess, depth of understanding for the language that you're taking uh, the original work out of and putting it, when you're putting it into the English language. I mean, that must be of critical importance. I think it's absolutely, it's essential. And one of the problems that we face in, with theater translation today is that um, theater producers are anxious to have an important playwright uh, whose name they can put on the, uh, on the billboard um, translating for them because it helps with... Um, you know, audience uh, development. But oftentimes, if a playwright doesn't have access to the original language, then they're kind of making things up. And so I think that uh, having real resource, real recourse to the, to the original um, language, whether it's uh, Swedish or Norwegian or Russian or French, is really crucial. And not just a knowledge of the language that is spoken today, but a knowledge of the language as it was spoken uh, at the time the play was originally written. Yeah, that makes sense. And do, do you uh, kind of explore where the playwright was and uh, any? I think no that, that, yeah, because ultimately, you know, we may be, uh, I may be dealing with characters, but the characters are all speaking in the voice of, uh, in the voice that is given them by a single author. So the more that one knows about, you know, the author, and the more that one knows about the the tricks and the uh, uh, the vocabulary that that author has employed throughout his or her career, the better the, 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 tra the more playable, the more accurate, and the more um, sustainable the translation is going to be. Now, do you believe it's, it's uh, important for audiences of today to be privy, to have the experience of hearing uh, new translations of old uh, works, classic works? Um, well, of course, as a translator, I, you know, I'm not going to say no. Uh, I think it's very important that classic works be constantly re-translated re because our language, our daily language, is shifts so quickly, uh, particularly throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. Language changes so radically, and the rhythms of the language change. So it's a matter of retrans the, the act of retranslating a classic play is a matter of keeping it as fresh as it was to its original audience, um, so that it doesn't sound like a 19th century novel, so that it sounds like a... like real people speaking, not necessarily uh, uh, contemporary people. So avoiding anachronism, certainly. Um, if you put a cell phone into uh, a doll's house, you've kind of thrown the whole plot away because nothing works that way. So not updating, but really look, searching for a rhythm that feels as contemporary today as, as Ibsen's language in a doll's house felt to his audience in the 19th century. So I think that retranslation of... Uh, brings a freshness, a, a vitality that is as fresh and vital as uh, as the language of the streets. Well, l let me go to something that's like pop culture, basically, mm. to, to get a better understanding. You know, several years back, you had uh, Shakespeare in Love was was uh, right. put out uh, on film with some of the the uh, heartthrob uh, actors, and and you know, it was sort of redone in a more contemporary manner. Is that good? That was presented as a not as a uh, translation of of Shakespeare into the modern world, but as a reimagining of Shakespeare, an adapting of of that life. I think, and those kinds of uh, imaginative takes on uh, on a, on a um, treasured past can be incredibly valuable. I think. I think that that's different, though, from uh, translating a, a classic play. Um, okay. 
it's anything anything that brings people into the theater and treats them with respect and uh, provides them with with more questions as they leave than what they went into. I feel is good. So something like Shakespeare in Love might uh, prompt someone to then then actually then actually go to see a Shakespeare production. Absolutely. So, and when you Absolutely. go when you go to see a Shakespeare production, the language for a lot of folks is difficult. You know, yes. today they don't understand it. So, should uh, a translator, should a, a dramaturg, uh, should the actors work to make that language more accessible, or should they be strict to that original uh, approach? That's a controversial question, um, and I've done both. I've I have updated. Um, uh, some of Shakespeare's lesser-known plays. Um, I have changed the language radically in, when I was working as a dramaturg because that's what the production chose to do. And I have also worked with actors to um, make clear and understandable, or at least um, poetic and understandable, the the original language from you know the, the the folio texts, or sometimes even from the quarto texts. So either approach, I think, it has its values. There they are different kinds of values, and certainly um, Shakespeare is our most read playwright today, um, and um, maybe least understood. Those texts are so variable and so rich that uh, that they allow for multiple approaches. Well, and, and let me—we're getting close to the end of our conversation, so I want to make sure I, I kind of get get at mm. certain areas that uh, I've been I've been wanting to to hear you address. Why is it that that you do this stuff? Why is it so important? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. The teaching to me right now is the most important thing because that's what I'm most engaged in. But I think you know, I think back to my years as institutional dramaturg. Live theater is itself such a uh, amazing cultural gift that when people experience it at its best, when it's when it's challenging, when it's uh, when, like I say, it takes its audience seriously, when it addresses issues of immediate and long-range concern, uh, sometimes philosophical issues, sometimes emotional issues, it provides us with a, a rich experience and a rich memory that really can change how we see the world and how we interact with, with others in the world. And besides just being darned entertaining when you have great actors uh, and providing an opportunity for a good night out, it really can affect our thinking of ourselves as members of a of a cultural and cultured civilization. It can open our eyes to new things that we'd never thought about or old things that we see in a brand new way. To me, live theater, the opportunity to be in an, in an audience of people breathing together with actors on a stage who are breathing the same air is an unimaginable gift, an unimaginable opportunity that provides us with a truly rich experience. Wonderfully put. We're talking to Dr. Paul Walsh, professor at Yale University, dramaturg, writer, critic, I guess, as well. And I wanted to, I wanted to get to that a, a little bit. I mean, how do you, how do you know when something's good? How could you <laughs> be sure? Well, you can never be sure. And when I worked as a, um, a literary manager, I, I, um, yeah, I would read a new script by an unknown playwright, and at first I would hold up the. Um, the model, I would say, is this play better than King Lear? 
And the answer was always no, interestingly <laughs> enough, partially because um, we've grown so accustomed to a play like King Lear that, and, and to the fact of its goodness or uh, the cultural assumption of its greatness that uh, something that's truly new and truly original um, might pass us by. I also, the other model that I said is, if, if I read Waiting for Godot for the first time, if I were the first to read Waiting for Godot, would I understand it? And again, the answer was no. So those two things would weigh on me as a uh, as a reader of, of new scripts. I would simply ask, not, if, not is it good, but is it necessary and is it meaningful to me right now? And then I would pass it on to the artistic director uh, who would make the final decision as to whether it's something we could consider or not. I also have, would have to ask, you know, does it fit into our thousand seat theater at, uh, at ACT? And often the answer was no there too. But... I think we just have, we have to approach theater, we have to approach new plays especially with a kind of humility and a kind of imagine, uh, um, adventuresome spirit to say, will the, how will this speak to me? Will this speak to me? And if it does, then it has served its purpose. Whether it, we, to, to judge whether it will, you know, last through the ages, um, meet the test of time, that's up to critics of the next generation to decide. Again, well put. Now, uh, before we run out of time this go-around, do uh, you have any projects you want to share uh, with <laughs> us that are coming up? Well, I don't, I, you know, I don't translate a play unless there's a serious interest from a theater in producing it because it's just so darn hard. Uh, it involves a lot of cursing and a lot of throwing things. Um, <laughs> And I, so I, there's a, there is a play that I, I would love to translate. I would love to be asked to, to translate Ibsen's Rasmusholm one of these days because it's such an obscure and, uh, and beautiful and painful and tortured play. But uh, I, no one has been ringing the bells recently. I'm looking forward to an, uh, a second production of Ghosts. I would love to see that produced again um, because, you know, even even though. I finished the translation. We did some readings of it. We got into rehearsal. I still made about 50 or 60 small changes uh, to accommodate the particular production, the, the things I was learning from the actors moment to moment. And another production would really, I think, uh, help me solidify that, uh, that text. Um, but I don't have any translations. I think the biggest thing on my mind right now is the pastoral plays of the Italian Renaissance, because that's what I'm going to be teaching in the, in the spring. So shepherds are my only thought these days. <laughs> I guess we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Dr. Paul Walsh, professor at Yale University, and uh, really a, a, a great conversationalist. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Talk to you again, hopefully. I look forward to it. Have a good one. Je ne sais pas ce que je
d'instruction. Même par son écrit le balancer toujours un père. Le sœur José en exprimait. Today's forecast, performed by Marnie Azzarelli, recorded at the Old Brick Theater in Scranton, Pennsylvania, courtesy of Diva Productions. Thanks, Bill. Well, it looks like we're in for a few days of unsettled weather, folks, but we'll get through it, won't we? Better get out and do your yard work early. Clouds are rolling in later today all over our area, down by Hicklesville and Sticklespot and East Chinchilla and Geezer's Point and Goober's Nest and Brickton and Slickton and the far and near Bumsteads and the Azure Valley and Alice's Cove and as far south as Comatose Point and Assisted Suicide Summit. So you fishermen down there, bring in your catch and stay safe, okay? And then comes the wind, accompanied by the high pitched scream of a tormented banshee, like something out of your worst nightmare. A chilling sound that will make strong men weep. You know all about that, don't you, Bill? <laughs> the sound of the wind will pierce your soul, no doubt about it. And the winds themselves, oh boy. Don't go outside, not even for an important piece of mail. Aunt Sally died and left you a bundle, say, and you're waiting for a letter from her lawyer. Not even if you hear your neighbor banging on the on your door and pleading to be let in. Let her go. She had her time. You open that door and you'll be sucked into a vortex and hurled into the air like the cheap rag doll my heartless mother gave me one Christmas long ago. Up into the air you'll fly and who knows where you'll land. In your grouchy neighbor's yard, perhaps. Or the parking lot of the local library. Or the town dump. Or the icy waters of the sea. Then the fog rolls in, and it's a thick one, folks. So thick it will envelop your whole village, grayish, white, billowing, and long-lasting. You'll be blinded and frightened. 
You'll lose your car, your grandparents, your past, and your will to live. When the fog finally lifts, leaving you blinking in disbelief and despair at the devastation in its wake, well, that's when the hail starts. Hail the size of fat babies hurtling down towards gazebos and swimming pools and outhouses and foolish old ladies off to the supermarket to buy a can of mushroom soup. Why didn't you wait and have the chicken noodle in your kitchen cabinet, Granny? Stay inside, ladies, or that hail will kill you on the spot. Splat! That's right, Bill. We could be scraping up a lot of little old ladies off the sidewalks for the next few days. <laughs> the hail will stop, thank goodness. And then comes the blood. Huge gobbets of blood will rain down from the sky, terrifying weak-willed children who look out from their attic window and pine for a comfort that they will not find. Blood will come pouring down for a few days, according to our models, and a flood watch will be in effect until the end of the week. Bad news for gardeners who will discover their carrots and tomatoes and cauliflower covered in a thick, viscous coating of blood when they're brave enough to venture out into their backyards. Finally, and we're not quite sure about the timing, keep checking your weather app, we're expecting fire-breathing raptors to fly in from the west. These raptors are known to be vicious, so keep an eye on your pets, or they'll be fried like the delicious calamari at Gino's restaurant in downtown Ficklesburg. Love their cannoli, Bill. The raptors will torch whole neighborhoods before they fly screeching up to Canada, sending those socialists running for cover. And good luck to them, eh? But the weekend, oh, the weekend looks lovely. Sunny, not a cloud in the sky, highs in the low 70s. Get out there and enjoy the precious hours you have left on the planet. Bask in the sunshine. Be glad you're alive. Back to you, Bill. You were inhabited Speaking in tongues in the night I wasn't having it I could tell that something wasn't right Why don't you come to bed Instead of stumbling into the light Of medicine cabinets Shaking up pills left and right Right It was anathema, spent half of my life 
up on the exchange Oh, it was anathema By half a mile To out of the deranged Oh, it was anathema Coffee table. Marquez tries to eat a fly as he chomps after it, focused and walking on the carpet between the fireplace and coffee table that is in front of the couch, poised beneath a big window, looking out at those old mountain tops and their trees without leaves, hibernating for winter. It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me So set em up, Joe I got a little story You ought to know We're drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. I know the routine Put another nickel In the machine I feel kind of bad Can't you make the music Easy and sad 
I could tell you a lot, but that's not in a gentleman's code. Make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. You'd never know it, but buddy, I'm a kind of poet, and I got a lot of things I'd like to say. And if I'm gloomy, won't you listen to me till it's talked away? Well, that's how it goes. And Joe, I know you're getting anxious to close. And thanks for the cheer. I hope you didn't mind my bending your ear. But this torch that I found, it better be drowned, or it's gonna explode. So make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. The long. It's long, mighty long. And there you have it, episode 342 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. With yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Dr. Paul Walsh. Also, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. And actress, Marnie Azzarelli. As well as these musical artists, Django Reinhardt. Stefan Grappelli, Hot 8 Brass Band, Ray Lamontaine, Alexander Von Mehern, Andrew Bird, Frank Sinatra, Brantford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening.